Welcome to uh, the Frogs War Podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. I'm your host, and I am here today not with Melissa Treewasser, but with Parker Fleming, because this episode is going to be all about advanced stats for baseball and for football, and maybe if we have a little bit of time, we're going to talk some basketball as well. But uh, without further ado, I want to welcome Parker onto the show. Parker, how are you doing? Hey, Jamie, doing well. Glad to uh, be on and talk a little baseball finally uh, this week. Yeah, man. You know, TCU kicks off the baseball season Friday uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona at the MLB4 tournament against, uh, let's see, Cal State Fullerton. Uh, We got Virginia and we've got uh, Vanderbilt on the docket for this weekend. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, uh, three top 25 uh, preseason teams. Uh, Everybody except uh, Virginia is ranked this week uh, going into the season. Uh, And you have, you know, between the four of the teams that are there this weekend, we've got uh, 30 appearances in the College World Series. So uh, a really big series. TCU is really fortunate to be um, recognized as being as successful as these other guys, but they definitely have a... uh, have a place in, in some prominent uh, baseball programs this weekend. So the, the kind of the, the purpose of this episode is really to do some deep dive stats and, and take a look at some advanced analytics, which obviously is far more your realm than anybody else's on staff with you working on your economics PhD. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, what you've seen in your kind of first glance at TCU baseball this year, as far as stats um, you know, and, and just kind of recruiting and that kind of stuff. What have you seen? Yeah. So, um, first I'll say I am working on a program to take some of those baseball, uh, like MLB stats, like weighted on base, on base average and deserved runs allowed. And some of those cutting edge analytics to, uh, baseball work for college baseball data. Uh, I didn't get it done as quick as I wanted to. And so, uh, I don't have those yet, but hopefully those are forthcoming. So what I decided to do for this weekend, especially because we don't really have any anything except last year to go on, was kind of look at uh, some stats of last year to see what kind of teams we had this weekend. Um, so I focused on uh, what I think are, are four of the most important things in college baseball, which are on-base percentage, home runs, slugging percentage, and then ERA, which basically says how well can you hit Um, how hard can you hit? And then how can you stop other people from scoring runs? Um, And so just looking at those, uh, we have some really wild numbers. Um, Last year, none of these teams were in the college world series. Uh, Vanderbilt and uh, Cal state Fullerton both lost in the super, uh, but TCU and UVA didn't even make the postseason. So it's interesting to see a lot of these teams bounce back. Uh, or if they will bounce back, knowing they've been historically great. Um, looking first, I'm just interested in, in who's going to hit this weekend, especially early in the season, and see whose offseason work is going to pay off. Um, TCU actually ranks first in on-base percentage uh, in 2018. Uh, they're, they're getting on base about 37% of the time, which is more than any of the other three of the programs this weekend. Um but you couple that with slugging percentage where they actually rank third out of four. Um, and so you're seeing that TCU last year suffered a lot of uh, singles and doubles and not a lot of doubles and home runs, which is what you'd like to ultimately see. Um, and we know, and we know that from last yeah. year, basically, and, you know, obviously you're pulling from 2018 stats, but you know, this is, um, 
hopefully something that they can remedy in 2019 because they've got some Juco talent coming in. They've got some young freshmen coming in as well. So, uh, you know, based on who's returning to this lineup, obviously with the big losses of A.J. Balta and Landestoy and, you know, Kobe Bowler is, is playing for Arkansas now, um, who specifically are you kind of pinpointing as kind of one of some of the key cogs in this lineup uh, that could help improve on those measures in 2019 over 2018? Well, I think that's um, something that makes me nervous uh, this season, but also is kind of fun about this season is one of my two questions going into the season is who's going to hit uh, TCU has 19 upperclassmen on their roster, but they did bring in a lot of young people who are going to uh, going to contribute and a couple transfers that should contribute. And so I think the most interesting thing this season is that there isn't a one clear, hey, this guy is going to take over, but there's a lot of opportunity for a guy like Johnny Riser or Josh Watson to really take leadership of the team. I think uh, between those two and Zach Humphreys, the team will go as far as those three go. Um, those those older, you know, uh, Oviedo is a sophomore, but he's got a lot of experience. Um, so between Riser, Oviedo, and Zach Humphreys, as far as those guys go, that's where TCU baseball is going to go on the offensive side of the ball this season. And you mentioned Josh Watson as well. Do, as as a senior, as a leader on this team, um, what do you what do you hope to see from him? From a numbers, you know, you named those kind of big four categories. What do you think would be a positive season for him? And how do you think uh, a season from him that's that's maybe even a little bit better than last year, where he was, I think, third on the team in batting average? Uh, what what will that do for for TCU's program this year? Well, um, yeah, he's been an interesting case because you know his freshman year he was slugging uh, 500, and then that 2017 season was very weird. I, if, if I recall correctly, that's he went a really really long hitless streak and had one home run the entire season and was only slugging 300. Uh, and last season he he was great with uh, up to 582, and that's that's probably more his true self. So I'm looking for him to stay up in that uh, mid to upper 500 range of slugging. And um, he hit 20 home run, 21 home runs last year. No, excuse me. That was RBI. That would have been crazy. I wish Josh <laughs> Watson would hit 20 home runs this year. Right. Uh, he hit seven home runs. I think double-digit home runs uh, out of Josh Watson would be an incredible season. It would be a huge boost to TCU, but it's not outside of the realm of possibility. You know, he hit 11 his freshman year, um, and last season had a, had a bunch of really hard-hit balls. Um, so Watson in the, in the high fives of slugging and double-digit home runs is going to be a really, really – good senior season for him. Very cool. And so you, you mentioned earlier uh, that you're, you're focusing on uh, who's going to hit this year. Um, but there's, you know, there's another aspect of baseball too, that uh, seems pretty stacked for the frogs and that's pitching, um, you know, with, with Janny and Lodolo and a couple Juco guys, I think Williamson, a big lefty throws mid nineties coming in, maybe going to end up in the weekend rotation uh, what have your stats borne out about the pitching for TCU in 2019? Yeah. So, I mean, going at, going into this weekend, you know, fo- focusing on the micro of what are we going to, what are we going to try and see at the very beginning that tells us about TCU going forward? TCU is um, first in this group out of pitching. Uh, they're tied with Cal State Fullerton at a three point four five ERA in 2018. Uh, but they are almost a, a full half run better than the other, than Virginia or Vanderbilt. So their pitching looks to be a good repeat performance, and getting J.J. back is going to be um, pretty awesome. I think my second big question besides who will hit is who is Nick Lodolo? Um, what what kind of pitcher is he? You know, we've seen some early inning inconsistency and some late inning dominance. Uh, last season his ERA was 2.89, uh, 
um, in 43 innings, which was, I mean, pretty stellar, but also was pretty rocky in terms of guarding difficult and, uh, and then kind of settling in later. So I think, um, you know, that Janzak's going to be solid, um, and there's a lot of bullpen help here, but I think Nick Lodolo, is he more that 2.89 from 2018 ERA, or is he more that 4.35 from 2017 ERA, that erratic and inconsistent? So in a similar way of, you know, how those, those big three go for TCU will determine a lot on the offensive side of the ball. I think the, the number I'm looking at right now is, uh, Lodolo's ERA. If he's well under three consistently, I think, uh, TCU will have a really, really special season. So, you know, in, at the pro level, you know, you and I have debated this a little bit because we're in a fantasy baseball league together, but how, how significant are some of those second level stats for pitchers and at the college level, like whip, um, and that kind of thing? Yeah. So there's, um, I mean, I think ERA, Lodola is a great picture of like ERA, not painting a really good picture. Um, mm-hmm. just because you can't, uh, you can't understand the context really of, you know, what an ERA is, um, or wins and losses. Lodolo was four and one last year. Um, and so, uh, I mean, you can't really tell what happened in those five games with a 2.9 ERA, you know? Um, so I think those next level stats are really, really important. Um, I think that it's really easy to get caught up on something like whip and think it's fancy, but inference on that is very difficult because it's walks hits whip whip is walks hits uh, per innings pitched. And so basically it's base runners. Um, And that's, that's good, you know, but it is possible for someone to allow a lot of base runners and be a good pitcher or uh, for someone to allow very few base runners and be a really bad pitcher. So that's a, that's a decent um, metric kind of in the line of, Hey, how is this compared to career averages or other people in the nation? But I would focus more on um, my favorite stat is uh, strikeouts, strikeout percentage minus walk percentage. Um, so how many more batters are you striking out than you are walking? Um, and I think that's really, really big. So for 2017, um, oh, I wanted this to have batter's face and it didn't. Yeah, it did. Okay, I, I was going to do this on the fly. So for for example, for 2014 or 2017, Nick Lodolo faced 340 batters. He walked 72 of them. That's 21%. And he struck out, well, he struck out 72 and then he walked 28 uh, of those 340. And so his differential there was plus 13 on strike, strike minus uh, walk percent, which is pretty good. Double digits, you know, almost um, one guy in 10 that he's striking out for every one guy that he's walking. And I think that's a really, really good second level metric that's easily accessible for college baseball. Some of the problem is uh, getting the data for those, uh, you know, ideally you'd like for batters that weighted on base average. So you're attributing run values to singles and doubles and triples. Um, and then for pitchers, something like deserved, uh, deserved runs or fielding independent pitching, looking at walks and home runs. Um, again, my hope for this season is to have that available, at least for TCU players, if not the nation, uh, because there is so it's so easy to look at these raw, unadjusted non-rate stats. So these like counting stats and infer things about performance that just aren't true or aren't meaningful. Gotcha. And so as far as providing context for some of those numbers, then, you know, what are some of the better things that can lend context to some of these stats? Because it's really easy. I think like you're inferring that 
for, for people to get caught up in these numbers a little bit too much and then maybe even read too much into them or apply apply them in situations that maybe contextually aren't aren't terribly accurate. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first rule, uh, the basic, the basic baseball analytics rule is for, for pitchers is wins and losses don't matter. Uh, throw wins and losses, uh, out of your head completely. Uh, you want to be looking at, um, you want to be looking at rates. So you want to be saying how many, you know, what percentage walk, what percentage strike out, how many runs per inning, uh, per nine innings to kind of standardize these things to give you a little bit more idea. You know, stats like ERA, um, or even, uh, or even, you know, innings pitched and hits, like that whip number. I would use those more mm-hmm. to say, uh, to die, not to diagnose, but to describe. So if someone has a really high ERA or really low ERA, you're describing that pitcher and saying, oh, this is happening. You know, they've got a really low ERA. That doesn't tell you how they got there. And so you use those as jumping points. And then you look at the ERA, and you're like, all right, how many guys is he striking out? Well, if he has a really low ERA and isn't striking out many guys then man, his fielding is pretty awesome because he's letting guys hit the, hit the ball and his fielding is helping him out. Um, if he has a really high ERA and is striking out a lot of guys, then, hey, his, the fielding that's around him is really leaving him out to dry. And so just little comparisons about, hey, this number looks abnormal or it looks higher or lower than I would expect. Then you can dig out with those contextual things and say, oh, yeah, it makes sense that player X has a 5.7 ERA. He's given up seven home runs in three games or whatever. Um, so I think using those traditional stats as jumping points is a really good way to get context, not to say, oh, player Y is really good because they have a low ERA, but if player Y has a low ERA, then you can look at strikeouts, uh, whip and home runs and get a really good sense of how much of that is influenced by context, how much of that is influenced by the the kind of batters he's faced. Awesome. That's really helpful. I think for, for folks who are maybe not as uh, adept at interpreting some of this data as you might be. Um, so, you know, another another con- contextual aspect, I think, if you start to pull the lens out a little bit more, is the fact that TCU baseball consistently plays a very strong non-conference schedule before they get into the Big 12, which obviously, if you're playing better competition, um, your numbers might look a little bit different than if you were playing weak competition. And so... Talk to me a little bit about this year's non-conference schedule versus conference schedules in years past, uh, and maybe how uh, how the non-conference schedule has affected TCU overall the last couple of years. I'm so glad you asked that question because I have some numbers about schedule that are pretty uh, pretty interesting. Um, TCU last season actually played Vanderbilt. You know, kind of uh, they they lost seven to four to Vanderbilt. Um, but they have some recent history there. But they were 20 and nine in their non-conference last season. Now, that number looks really, really inflated because TCU plays uh, Abilene Christian, Grand Canyon, Sam Houston State, uh, Stephen F. Austin twice, UT Arlington twice, Dallas Baptist twice, Rand Grio Valley twice. So there's a couple of those numbers that don't matter as much. But um, TCU went and won two of three out in California against Irving uh, last year. And in 2017, they went to the Shriners Classic early on and performed really, really well. Uh, Swept... Uh, the Shriners Classic beating LSU um, A&M, who they beat twice in 2017. I can't not mention that. Uh, and then and, and, uh, <laughs> University of Mississippi, they beat as well. The 2017, they also performed well against Virginia, um, who had a down year in 18, but in 17 was a really competitive team, and they beat Virginia 5-1. to one. So TCU has a really strong history of, of starting off the season 
uh, of February going really, really well for them. Uh, and so that's a good barometer for the kind of season they're going to have. Um, just because they, uh, they, they start strong. Slosh Nagel usually has them ready to go. Um, so I think that's a good kind of bellwether for what they're going to be this year and how serious, you know, players are locked in because TCU does start strong so often. If they have a good weekend, um, I think you can expect some really good things from TCU this, uh, this year. Um, it is interesting to note as well that um, despite... I think this is the, I, this is easily the hardest schedule that TCU's had to start off. Um, they are facing, you know, three three ranked teams, like I said, but they're also facing three teams, uh, or, or three teams in the top fifty of recruiting. So all of these teams are bringing in uh, really, really good recruits that are going to immediately contribute, uh, and TCU has some of those as well. But I think this weekend will be a lot of. Uh, answers about TCU's national state. If they lose three games, it won't be the end of the world and they can still go to Omaha, um, but it'll tell us about what they need to do against elite competition. So I like the fact that TCU started strong uh, in the past, and I like the fact that they're getting some strong competition at the beginning of the season here to kind of see, hey, where are we and who are we going to be this year? You make a really good point there that it is a good barometer, but how much of an impact for the selection committee you mentioned that even if TCU loses all three of these games this weekend, they still have a good chance of making the tournament. Uh, do you think that that is the case if they have a mediocre non-conference schedule, or is it something that if they lose three games right out of the gate, they're going to have to pick it up pretty quickly in order to build that resume back up? Yeah, I mean, you the Big 12 is tough, and, uh, and I've seen projections that have TCU as low as fourth in the Big 12 this year. Um, and... So, I mean, I think you've got to, you give yourself a really thin margin by having, by stumbling this weekend or having a slow start, um, especially because your non-con is really not there after. This is your, you know, they've got a game against um, A&M and Houston and Rice uh, in that Shriners Hospital Classic again. But uh, outside of that, you know, the, a series against Seton Hall uh, and then your your local teams again. So this is a really a chance to have a statement win. Uh what TCU wants to avoid this year is what they were doing last year, which is playing for their life in the Big 12 tournament. And so uh, a two-in-one weekend goes a long way in the eyes of the selection committee. One, boosts you up a seed and increases your chances of hosting a regional because you'll have those marquee wins. All four teams this weekend are going to be good this year. Um, but also it, it widens your margin in the Big 12 uh, in the eyes of the selection committee so that when you're getting everyone's best shot, like TCU baseball often does in the Big 12, um, you can afford... Uh, a couple mistakes. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's, <clears throat> Parker, let's shift gears for a little bit. And uh, I wanted to get to this. This is an article that I sent you uh, earlier this afternoon. Um, you know, we're obviously, we're recording this on Monday. Um, but Bill Colony over at the mothership at SBNation.com has released his projected 130 team uh, S&P rankings for college football. Um which, you know, for those that don't know, Bill Connolly is one of the kind of premier uh, advanced data folks in college athletics at this point. He does an, an, a tremendous amount of incredible work for SBNation.com. Uh, he has really kind of opened the door to uh, some next-level insights into college football as far as efficiency goes um, and how, how teams have performed against uh, quality opponents versus lesser opponents, that kind of stuff. So he's been doing some really incredible work. Parker, I know that 
he's one of those guys that you kind of look to um, as, you know, one of the kind of bigger voices in this arena of, of college football analysis. Um, but he, he, re- he released his preseason S&P Plus projections today. Um, and so tell me a little, uh, tell me, just kind of right out of the gate, um, how does the Big 12 shape up uh, when you looked at those ratings earlier today? Yeah, so the Big 12 shakes up just about like it has the last couple of years with Oklahoma at the top. Um, Oklahoma's ranked fifth overall. Uh, and then he's got Oklahoma State, TCU, Texas, West Virginia, Baylor, Iowa State, Tech, K-State, and Kansas. Um, so not too crazy different from the standings this past season. Um, TCU is obviously a little higher than they finished. Uh, West Virginia's down. Ohio, or Iowa State is down. Um, but it doesn't look like they're, uh, from his early, early projections, which these are early, early projections. They'll get revised. Um, it looks again like this is Oklahoma's league to lose. And is that is that based on his kind of observations of key people lost for each team? So, you know, West Virginia losing Will Greer obviously is a knock for them. Uh, Iowa State losing David Montgomery, TCU with quarterback questions, but Oklahoma getting Jalen Hurts, that, that gives them maybe a little bit of a bump in the projections as well. Yeah, um, so Oklahoma, actually, their offense, their returning offense is uh, 46%, which is, so excuse me, they're returning 40, 46% of their uh, offensive production last year, which is 109th in the nation, which makes sense. They're losing, you know, Marquise Brown, um, Rodney Anderson, who was talented and didn't put up any numbers but could have contributed, is uh, gone to the draft, um, and then, and then of course, Kyler Murray. Uh, so they lose a huge chunk of production, but this does not factor in Jalen Hurts transfer. Um, okay. and so that's a big part of the equation uh, because who knows what he's going to, what he's going to bring back. Um, those, those returning rankings are, I think really, really indicative. Uh, so his, his early S and P production or S and P pro- projections are based on returning production, your recruiting impact, and then kind of like an, a catch all of your f- five year average. So how well have you done the last couple of years, which is like a good, hey, here's the mean of your performance. And then your returning production and your recruiting will kind of shift your mean up or down. So it's an, it's an inexact science, but it is a, a really interesting way to rank these teams. Um, but so I put a lot of stock in the returning production because I think those are super important numbers for discussion. Um, for example, some stuff that jumps out to me, uh, Texas is... 123rd in returning production on defense, 121 overall. So they are the worst power five team in terms of returning production. They lose a ton on defense. Um, And so it's interesting to see the narrative of, hey, Texas has built a lot. Texas' S&P last year wasn't as good as some people thought it should have been. And they lose a lot of production. How is that going to affect them? Um, on the other hand, I hate to say this, uh, Baylor is going to be good next year. Baylor might be really good next year. No way. Yeah. Really? Is that is that because of just returning production? I mean, you look at you look at that squad and the way that they finished the season, which uh, it kind of floundered there late in this in the down the stretch. Uh, do you really think that that is in, indicative of them having a good season this yeah, year? Yeah, so they're they're uh, projected 40th in S&P, and they've increased every year under Matt Rule, which, I mean, they've increased since Jim Grobe. Uh, Groby, I don't know. 
He was on the uh, yeah something. He was on the American Alliance team. He's like a coordinator for one of the Alliance teams. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, but they've increased every year, which again they were really bad, so it's not hard to do that. Um, but they're twentieth overall, so projected fortieth in S and P, twentieth overall in returning production, fifty ninth on offense and seventh on defense. Baylor brings back eighty five percent of their defensive production next year, um, and they were fourth in the conference in recruiting. So they're filling in some of those gaps. I think Baylor is going to be um, better than a lot of people think this year, which uh, makes my stomach flip over. But um, the other, so oh, I, I know that I know that. Sorry, I know that S and P Plus does a little bit of win projections too. I didn't get all the way down the list today, but what is Bill saying about Baylor's win total? And because I, you know, I, I understand how important returning production can be. But I still look at, and and the same goes for TCU because of questions at quarterback and replacing some guys on defense like Banigou and Collier. Uh, how much stock can you put in returning production when uh, you you there are just so many big questions around who's going to fill in those gaps? Yeah, well, so I think I think there's two questions there that I want to answer. Um, the first one is like, is is this is not a Baylor podcast, so I'm not going to stick on this, but Baylor basically learned their lesson and stopped scheduling teams that can beat them in their off in their non-con. So they're playing SFA rice and UTSA mm-hmm. uh, next season. So that's three wins right off the bat, which they haven't had three non-con wins in a, in a while. Um, and then additionally, you look at some of these breaks, they get Iowa state at home. Um, they get West Virginia at home. They get Oklahoma at home. They get Texas at home. Um, and you can see a couple of those breaking. So I, I, Bill doesn't have his win projections out yet because he like does those. Uh, he releases them as part of his daily preview series, which I think has already started, where he previews all 130 teams on the mothership. Go look it up. Uh, but I could see Baylor winning gotcha. eight games next year. I like looking at their schedule: three non-con and then five conference okay. games. Iowa State at home, Kansas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, and then one of TCU, Texas, Oklahoma. Shoot. And, and then Kansas. So, yeah, I could see five wins for them super easy. Um, second, returning production does – that's a great point you bring up. Returning production okay. does require a ton of context. So I have uh, I have two things written about TCU's returning production. Let me list their numbers really quick. They were um, 85th overall with 60% of their total production returning. Uh, they're 36th on offense with 73% of their returning or production returning. And on defense, they are 47th. Or mm, nope, 47%, which is 111th. Um, their recruiting was 33rd overall, third in the conference, and so they are bringing in some impacts. But I think those numbers are deceptive, and so I want to illustrate your question, the answer to your question, with two facts. Um, so TCU's offense is ranked or has 73% of their production coming back. Uh, that's misleading, and that's an overestimate, uh, because what does TCU not have for the second straight year? A quarterback, first time maybe under Gary Patterson, at least since I've been cognizant of TCU, that in back-to-back seasons we have not known who the quarterback is. Um, so that's interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, also, there are three people coming back who are uh, disproportionately responsible for, TC- for saving TCU's behind last season on offense. Uh, Jalen Rager, uh, who had nine of our 18 passing mm-hmm. touchdowns and who had two of our 13 running uh, rushing touchdowns. Uh, I'm saying 13 instead of 14. The Jalen Austin fumble doesn't count as a rushing touchdown. So two of 13. So we had 50% of our passing touchdowns 
and 15% of our rushing touchdowns. He's coming back. So that's a ton of production just out of one guy. And then uh, Shaywo and Darius are both back. And mm-hmm. they had 38% of our rushing touchdowns and 60% of our rushing yards. Um, Jalen Rager had 35% of our total touchdowns. And then the two running backs had 38% of our rushing touchdowns. So bringing back just those three guys uh, will make you overestimate what the offense is bringing back because you still need eight other guys on the offensive field, uh, on the offensive side of the field. And one of those has to be a quarterback who can get the ball to Jalen Rager Mm -hmm. and hand the ball off and make reads. And we don't know who that is yet. So I think the offense is overestimated. Uh, My only note uh, for defense and why defense at 47% and ranked 111th is I wrote Blacklock in all caps and circled it about 22 times because he is a high (laughs) round draft pick next level talent and got hurt last season. And so we're going to get to recover all of that. So I think there is reason that people Mm -hmm. are underestimating the TCU defense because they're not accounting for that. And they're not accounting for Garrett Wallow getting to play safety and not linebacker, which I think could happen this season. So between Blacklock and Wallow, I think defense is underestimated, but between Rager and the running backs, I think the offense is a little overestimated. So realistically then, what do you, what do you kind of foresee these numbers bearing out for TCU in 2019? I am, uh, I don't think I'm going to, I, I, I am seeing that I need to do my numbers on win projections and that could probably be a fun post. Mm -hmm. Um, I think looking at these S and P rankings, I do not see a team that is obviously better than TCU. I do not see a team that obviously has more answers filled than TCU does except for Oklahoma. Right. So it's kind of like last year where there's uncertainty, but number two is there if you want it. Uh, You know, four teams have new quarterbacks. Um, Oklahoma state has a new coordinator who runs a really fun, but also really gimmicky offense. Um, uh, and so I don't, I don't know if that's going to be anything important. Uh, they're projected for second. And then with Texas, they are building a lot of momentum and Tom Herman evidently can coach a little bit, but they they are saddled with losing a lot of production and getting really lucky in one score games last year. Um, and they the metrics didn't like them. So they'll, they'll improve, but also I don't think they're inevitable as the, as the number two team. So I could see TCU second, uh, pretty, pretty easily among this list. I think most TCU fans would take that going, you know, I mean, obviously it's February. And so you're heading into a a spring practice where you don't know who your quarterback is going to be. Two of the four guys on the roster aren't ready to play or practice yet at all. Um, and so I think if you if you're saying right now that there's a you know a decent likelihood that TCU makes it back to the Big Twelve Championship game, I think Frog fans would be pretty happy with that. Yeah. Well, I did forget it's February. Sorry, my prediction is fifteen and zero, and we win the Natty. Um, okay, nice. That's better. Yeah. I think they'll even be more more impressed with that. <laughs> Write that down. You can say Fe- February is La La Land. You can say whatever you want here. It's magical. <laughs> That, I think, will do it for this episode of the Frogs War podcast. Parker, thank you so much for being patient with me and explaining math and data and numbers to a guy who really just sees more than three numbers in the same line of text and starts to – I get faint. I, start to, I need to sit <laughs> down. So, um, But, you know, this is something, folks, that we're going to start to start to do more and more of, sitting down with Parker and having him kind of deep dive into the numbers. I promise that 
as often as I'm on this show with Parker that I will not uh, slow him down too much. Um, but Parker, thank you for, for taking the time to break this down. I think this has been a really cool little window into what we can expect from TCU baseball and TCU football in 2019 based on what we saw last season. For sure. No, excited to do it. And yeah, it's always fun to get someone to listen to me talk about numbers and random things I think of. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Right on. And then we'll have, we'll obviously, you know, we're in the middle of basketball season right now. So we're going to have to dive into those numbers at some point too. Do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? What do you got tonight? I know we're about, we're both about to go out the door and go. Gosh. To the Kansas game. Uh, yeah. I think there's a big basketball game against Kansas in like three hours. So we should probably on, head off to that. Favorite on Ken Palm. Yeah, I saw that. And ESPN has this as a three-point favorite, too. i so scared. What is going on? All right, but this has been the Frogs of War podcast, special episode, Stats of War with Parker Fleming. I'm Jamie Plunkett. You can find me on Twitter at Frog, Peach, Frog Preacher. You can find Parker on Twitter at F-O-W underscore Parker. Is that right? Some, uh, I, think it's, I think it's Parker underscore F-O-W. I'm on there in a minute late. Okay. I, yeah, yeah. Parker underscore yeah, F-O-W. So follow Follow him there. Follow the whole the whole crew at, at Frogs of War, and obviously read all of Parker's great deep dives into analytics on frogswar.com, along with everything else that the staff does. You can follow us uh, on iTunes as well if you want to keep listening to this podcast. And, uh, you know, we're a part of the SB Nation Podcast Network now, so that's kind of a cool thing. You can find us on the mothership. So all of the TCU content you could ever want, always completely free. Check us out wherever you find us, uh, and go Frogs. Go Frogs.